It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 204 for August 8th, 2010. Recorded August 6th. Recently, I came to an odd conclusion. Sometimes to make a computer faster, you need to slow things down. It may seem to you that it takes a long time for your computer to start up. I know it did for me. The office computer is slow because what I do in the office doesn't require a great deal of speed. And where I notice the problem is at startup time. Every auto start application tries to start at the same time. They get in each other's way. They step on each other's digital toes. They trip each other up. As a result, sometimes I can't do any real work on the computer for about 15 minutes. It isn't all my fault. Windows does start a lot of services, but I start a lot of programs that I need to synchronize a calendar, grab screenshots, backup files, run macros, and communicate via an instant messenger. In all, about 35 applications or services are trying to load simultaneously. Some are more important than others. I need the mouse driver right away, for example. Most of the Windows services need to be running as soon as possible. We want the antivirus application to be fully functional as soon as it can be. But some applications aren't that important. If the screen capture program, the macro program, calendar sync and such don't start for a few minutes, that's okay. But I thought the only way to do that would be to remove these programs from either the startup folder or the run folder in the registry. Then, of course, I would have to start them up by hand. That would hardly be faster. Enter Startup Delayer. R2 Studios is an Australian company that creates commercial software and also offers some free utilities. Startup Delayer is one of those free programs. Cliff Crawley of Brisbane started R2 Studios in 2001 and continues to run the business in what he calls his spare time. His startup delayer is now in version 2.5, and Cliff says he's working on a new version 3. The next version will have 100% support, he says, for Windows 7, as well as some new automatic features for launching applications. The startup delayer doesn't demand that users pay. It doesn't even nag. But if you visit the company's website, you will have the opportunity to donate. When you load Startup Delayer for the first time, it examines your system and identifies applications that start with Windows. It then presents the list to you and allows you to schedule those applications so that they start in a specific number of seconds, minutes, or even hours after Windows starts. You can also deselect an application so that it won't start at all. And you can use Startup Delayer to start any application in its list, whether it's been disabled, whether it's scheduled for startup, or during startup if you needed to be running sooner than you thought. I identified eight applications that take a fairly long time to start, Digsby, for example, or that I don't need to be active right away. For example, Snagit. Then I schedule these applications to start later. Macro Express, two minutes after boot time. Snagit, three minutes. Digsby, five minutes. Windows Search, I rarely would use Windows Search early on, seven minutes. Google Update, ten minutes. Google Calendar Sync, 16 minutes. All I really need that is at the end of the day. I could set that to be hours later if I wanted. Task Power, 17 minutes. 
Sun Java Update Scheduler, 20 minutes. Why the big gaps? Well, I left some spaces because I think there are some other auto start applications that might reasonably be added to the list. For example, I know that I will always start Outlook, Chrome, Firefox, and Secure CRT. It might make sense to add these to the auto start queue. As a result of this change, though, I can load Outlook, Chrome, Firefox, and Secure CRT much sooner and start to be productive faster. The other applications load later, more or less in the background. And after 20 minutes, everything is running. The startup delayer seems to be one of just two applications that the company continues to develop. Many of the programs date back to 2005 or even 2001. But Crawley offers Zion. That's an audio player I haven't yet tried, but probably will. The bottom line for startup delayer, four cats. Slow down those startups and speed up your computer. This is one of the most sensible utilities I've seen, and given its price, which is free, I would make sure it's on every computer I own. Actually, it's not yet on my Windows 7 64-bit machine, but it is on the Windows 7 32-bit system, and it works exactly as expected. I believe it would work properly on the 64-bit operating system, too, but I know that version 3 will fully support Windows 7, so I'm waiting a bit. The rating, as I said, is 4 cats because of 5, because it's not yet really available for Windows 7. For more information, you can visit the R2 Studios website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Alt-Comp Freeware. That's a news group that's dedicated to identifying and advancing the best freeware applications available. News group? Depending on how long you've known about the Internet, you may know nothing about news groups, or you might consider them to be an essential part of your daily life, or you may think they're used for nothing but porn and stolen software. In fact, the news protocol, which is called NNTP, is either the second or third oldest protocol on the Internet, behind only email and probably telnet that were there first. Those in the know still consider news groups to be a valuable resource. If you don't do news groups, though, there is a website that will take you to many of the gems reported by the news group members. It's called Pricelessware. The list reflects categories and programs favored by alt-comp freeware news group participants. Although it's not a comprehensive list, you'll find many recommendations, and in some cases, there'll be programs that you may already know about. There are lots of classes of software. Some applications are free, and of course, some are not. Some are in kind of a middle ground. I thought I'd use Pricelessware's summary with a few additions and clarifications that I've added. And as we go through the list, please note, some types of freeware are to be embraced, others to be shunned. And in that gray area between, there are some applications that are free in terms of you don't pay any cash for them, but maybe not entirely free in terms of you have to do something or sit through an ad just to get the application at no charge. So let's start with abandonware, or sometimes it's called orphanware. This is software that the original owner no longer offers to the public. Copyright laws still do apply, and the programs are freeware only if they have been released as freeware by the owner or given freeware status. There is adware. This is software that displays advertising for other products or services. Often these advertised products or services are available directly from the application via an Internet download. Sometimes they even display little ads as part of the application's interface. 
There is Betaware. These applications are preliminary, but they are usable. It's an idea of what the final version will look like. Beta versions are intended for testing by potential users and often expire on a specified date. There is CDware. These are promo CDs that you'll find with magazines, books, or other products. Those are pretty uncommon these days. And, of course, there's commercial software. That's the stuff that's sold. These applications are never free. And, of course, there's shareware. These are commercial applications, but there is a period during which you can download them and use them for free. After that, they expire, and you have to either purchase them or remove them from your computer. Next is Crippleware, free version of a commercial program, more limited in features usually and functionality than the commercial product. Usually, functions that are important to the average user will have been disabled. There is Demoware. That's kind of a close cousin to Shareware. This is software that is intended to give potential purchasers an idea of how the program works. You may not be able to test or use all of its features. The software may have full functionality, though, with an expiration date or limited functionality without an expiration date. Fairly good number of applications go out these days as donationware. The applications themselves are free, but the developer requests a donation. The application continues to work regardless of whether you make that donation or not. There is legitimate freeware, legally obtainable software. You may use at no cost, monetary or otherwise, for as long as you wish. Sometimes these are limited to non-commercial use. Sometimes they're commercial and non-commercial use. There's malware. This you want to avoid. You typically will get malware for free, but it contains malicious programming. You don't want that on your computer. There is nagware. This is software with a pop-up screen that asks you for a contribution. To eliminate the nag screen, you have to contribute, but the program continues to work regardless. Postcardware. This is a category I've always enjoyed. The developer asks you to send a postcard if you use and enjoy the application. That's it. Just a postcard. Or registerware. Similar to postcardware, this application's developer would ask you to do something, send an email, support a cause, contribute to a charity, or just do a good deed, for example. Spyware. That's a version of malware. Spyware applications send information about you and your computer, perhaps your bank records, to somebody you don't want to have that information. Spyware may also install files on your hard drive without your knowledge, so that's something to be avoided. There is trialware. This is very similar to shareware. Trialware stops working after a certain period or a number of uses. And if you look around enough, you'll find wares, that's spelled W-A-R-E-Z, software stolen or enabled by illegal means, and often this stuff comes with malware. It's another classification to be avoided. And there's webware. This is an increasing area. Online software, all application functionality is provided as an online service, sometimes free, sometimes not. The most recent list of free applications is the 2009 Pricelessware list, which lists applications that contributors to AltComp Freeware voted the most useful programs last year. In looking through the list, I noticed many applications that I use on a regular basis. 7-Zip, for example, CCleaner, GhostScript, HJSplit, Irfanview, MalwareBytes, Anti-Malware, Moz Backup, OpenOffice, Opera, Putty, Revo Installer, just to name a few of them. With the exception of large applications such as OpenOffice, most of the applications are utilities, CCleaner, GhostScript, for example, or they are single-function applications like Irfanview, Putty, or the Revo Uninstaller. 
it's really worth looking at the list of available applications and asking yourself if one of these free applications might just perform a task that you need to have performed. If you're looking for applications that force you to pay less or nothing when you use them, a visit to AltComp Freeware or Pricelessware would be a good way to spend an afternoon. And if you go to AltComp Freeware, you will need a newsreader, although most browsers will more or less function as sort of a newsreader these days. In coming weeks, I'll tell you about some of the freeware programs I use, why I use them, and what I like about them in addition to the price. This week's first segment, by the way, was about a free program that is a welcome addition to a slow computer. Based on what we hear about the company, if Intel's chips were on a par with the company's marketing ethics, we'd still be running 4.77 MHz 8088 processors. Well, now, although it says it never did any of those things, this week the chip maker reached a settlement with the Federal Trade Commission, but that's not the end of Intel's legal challenges. In the past, Intel has retaliated against computer manufacturers if they gave any business at all to competitors, such as advanced micro-devices. The company has denied doing this, of course, but now says it won't do it anymore. Intel also promised not to pay customers to buy its chips. That sounds a lot like bribery to me. Intel said it never did that, of course, and won't do it anymore. Intel says it never redesigned chips in ways that were intended to harm a competitor. But Intel also says it won't do that anymore, either. The company says that it never paid computer manufacturers to reject other manufacturers' chips. And yes, it won't do that anymore following the settlement with the FTC. In short, Intel accepted all terms of the settlement, but never admitted that it had actually committed any of those anti-competitive acts. The agreement with the FTC forces Intel to establish a $10 million fund that will be used to help business customers modify software if Intel misled them. That seems a rather small amount, given the cost of computer programming. Last year, the European Commission fined Intel nearly $1.5 billion for anti-competitive acts, and legal actions by some states, Europe, and Asia are still pending. Intel was clearly afraid of its smaller rival, AMD. For several years, starting in about 2003, AMD's technology was ahead of Intel's. The charges against Intel suggest that when the company couldn't win on the technological grounds, it made restrictive agreements with computer manufacturers. But, of course, Intel never did anything wrong, it says, even though it pledged never again to do the things it denied doing in the first place. In short circuits, last week I said that Amazon had nearly convinced me to buy a Kindle. Before Monday, I had ordered a Kindle, and it was scheduled for delivery around the end of August. On Tuesday, I canceled the order. I haven't ordered one of the competing products either, and won't, until I can research them more carefully. That's really too bad, because I like the idea of being able to carry several, or several hundred, or even several thousand books with me for reference, or just to read at lunch or during other non-productive times. I knew that the Kindle wouldn't load library books that have digital rights management enabled, that's DRM, but I also knew that applications existed to modify files so that they would load. The technology does not remove the DRM, just modifies the file so that the Kindle can understand it. Now, if a third-party programmer can do this, I have to think that Amazon can figure it out too, but has chosen not to. 
Instead, Amazon directs users to, and I quote, over 1.8 million free out-of-copyright pre-1923 books, end quote. What I found in the several services I looked at are sites that are difficult to navigate, few books that I really wanted to read, and many files that have such serious defects that even if I wanted to read them, they're all but unreadable. I was able to determine this for myself because Amazon has a free application called Kindle for PC. It runs on any Windows PC. You can then use it to view any book that you could view on a real Kindle, including those that you've bought from Amazon. Because so many of the free ebooks are either physically damaged or mentally unchallenging, the ability to borrow ebooks from the library is particularly important. But the more I read about the process of modifying library files to work with the Kindle, the less excited I was by the prospect of doing so. I visited Amazon's website and sent a message to the support staff asking for confirmation that the new version either would or would not work with DRM-protected files from libraries. The response was a page of legalese that purported to explain what DRM is, so clearly the person who received my question didn't really bother to read it or understand it. In a reply to that message, I explained that I do know what DRM is, and again asked that Amazon state plainly whether the new version of the reader would work with DRM-protected books. The answer was marginally clearer. I quote, Currently, we do not have a program specifically for library lending of e-books, end quote. And then the writer again pointed me to the page of legalese. That really is too bad, because I am truly excited by the thought of being able to carry around dozens of PDF-based reference works, maybe a novel or two and some non-fiction works. Given Barnes & Noble's somewhat precarious financial position, I'm reluctant to consider the third horse in what's essentially a two-horse race, and the reviews of Sony's entry haven't really inspired me either. Besides, I've had problems with some of Sony's computing devices in the past. Although the electronic book may be the book of the future, the future seems more distant now than it did just last week. <laughs> America Online is still in the top ten when it comes to web traffic, but you'd never know that from the way the company is perceived. News that AOL has just reported a second quarter loss of $1 billion isn't going to help with that image either. The company's base of dial-up users continues to shrink as people move to higher speed options. Dial-up subscriptions dropped nearly 30% in the quarter, but much of this year's second quarter loss really came from write-downs, AOL reduced the book value of Bebo. Bebo is a social networking site and one you've probably never heard of. Advertising revenue down in the first quarter was down more than 25% in the second quarter. Instead of a $1 billion loss, a year ago, AOL reported a net income of $91 million. AOL says the write-down shows the company is now getting stronger and will do more than just survive. The word used actually was thrive. Thanks for listening to Tech Fighter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.